This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, making whole grain oats, flours, and other natural ingredients that you should cook with if you're serious about proper nutrition. Today, we're looking at millet, the most ancient of grains. It was first farmed nearly 10,000 years ago, which is just about the same time that humans invented farming, and we've been eating it ever since. Millet contains B-complex vitamins, essential amino acids, and it's a good source of magnesium. But it's not just good for you, it's also good for the planet in a lot of ways. It has a short growing season, so it doesn't need much water, and it's resistant to pests and really good at tolerating drought. The millet seed is tiny, and cooks up with a subtle and slightly nutty flavor. Once you've eaten it, millet can help with all sorts of health issues, lowering the risk of gallstones, diabetes, and lowering blood pressure by adding potassium to your diet. It's also gluten-free and easier to digest than a lot of other flours. And it's a common ingredient in beer. All those health benefits, and you're going to remember the thing about the beer, aren't you? Find out more at bobsredmill.com outside. And enter for a chance to win some Bob's Red Mill prizes, a subscription to Outside, a book from our collection, and a brand new backpack. One winner will be selected at random each month. That's bobsredmill.com outside. From Outside Magazine and PRX. This is the outside interview. I'm just gonna test your guys' mics so with Chris Cass. If you've paid any attention to golf in the past twenty years, aside from pointing out how it's basically a giant waste of spaces that could be parks, you've no doubt heard the seemingly mythical but actually fairly true story about Tiger Woods. The story goes that before he could even walk, Tiger was using a putter. And one time as a kid, it went on TV and beat the golf-loving comedian Bob Hope in a putting contest. He was two. Then he won his first competition at eight years old. You probably know the rest. There it is, a win for the ages. Tiger's story is often held up as an example of the advantages of specialization. The idea is that if you want to reach the pinnacle of a sport or field of study, you have to start young and maintain near laser-like focus from day one. If you didn't pick up a putter until you were five, well, you're too late. Recently, this level of specialization has been associated with another term, grit. This trait, a sort of stick-to-itiveness, has been praised recently as the actual secret to success. More important than skill or raw talent is just how long you're willing to persevere, whether it's a sport, an instrument, or a field of study. The advice is the same. Start early, focus intensely, and practice deliberately. Everything else is just distraction. Yet that may not be the whole story. In his new book, Range, author David Epstein challenges the idea that specialization and grit are the proven factors for success, and instead argues that taking a more generalized approach, while slower in the short term, may be the surest route to excellence. Recently, Outside Editor Chris Kai spoke with Epstein about the advantages of being a generalist, and why the most telling story of a famous athlete's path to greatness doesn't come from golf. It comes from tennis. Here's Chris. What, what drew you to look at the examples of Roger Federer and Tiger Woods? What are the differences there in their, um, their path to greatness, and, and what, what did you learn from that? 
like even if you don't know the details of the Tiger Woods story, people have probably absorbed the gist because it's such a, you know, maybe it's the most famous developmental story of all time. And I think it's I think it's definitely fair to say that Roger Federer is every bit as famous as an adult, uh, as an athlete as he is. But we know nothing about his, you know, people usually don't acknowledge his development story, which is that. He dabbled in a number of sports. His mother was a tennis coach, refused to coach him uh, because he wouldn't return balls normally. Um, when his coaches wanted to bump him up to a higher level of competition with older boys, he declined because he just wanted to talk about pro wrestling with his friends. And he dabbled in like a dozen different sports, you know, handball, basketball, soccer, badminton, swimming, wrestling, skiing, um, a little bit of rugby. Uh, and that turns out to be the norm, even though it feels like the exception. And so... So I thought these two guys who are two of the most famous athletes in the world and really known for at least at a certain point dominating their sport would would kind of demarcate the polar opposite ends of, of this debate in, in an effective way. So if Roger's path is the norm, as you write, um, why have we arrived at this place where, where Tiger's model is held up and where specialization – we put such a premium on specialization and getting our kids – um, into a certain track so early. Why, why has that prevailed? I, I think there's sort of two main reasons. One is I think the story is just incredibly dramatic. It's intuitive that a head start in whatever it is you're eventually going to do would be the best way to go. Like, I, as I explored a lot of this research, initially I found it deeply counterintuitive. You know, one, of the, one of the themes of range, I think, is that sometimes the things you can do to cause the fastest short-term results undermine long-term development. And... and I really found that counterintuitive, and so I can understand why other people do. And I think it's a tidy message also, right? It's a lot more confusing to say, well, sample some things and zig and zag and find your spot. It's a much tidier message and much more intuitive message to say, pick your thing, stick with it, work hard, because those are good values, right? To say, like, you should work hard at things, I think, is a good value. It's just maybe our intuition isn't um, set up in such a way that we always do what's the best for our long-term development. So I think that's I think that's one side of it. The other side of it, I think, is a little more nefarious, which is, you know, when I was living in Brooklyn up until pretty recently, and there was a U7 travel soccer team that met at a park near me, and I don't think there's a human being in the world who thinks that six-year-olds can't find good enough competition in a city of nine million people that they have to travel, you know? But, but those kids are customers for whoever's running that league, and so they have a really a vested interest in keeping them away from uh, from other sports and, and from other leagues. And so I think in some countries, you know, like Norway, where you see a more holistic development model, you see something different there, not as much pressure to specialize early. And, and you know, there was just an HBO Real Sports about their sports development. They, like, exploded the last Winter Olympics, one of the maybe the greatest Winter Olympic performance ever. And they're not going toward this specialization. In the U.S., where our sport development is much more balkanized, you have a lot of youth coaches whose only incentive is to win like the eight-year-old championships. And if that's your incentive, then you should specialize those kids and teach them technical skills and how to run plays and all these things that might not be best for their long-term development. But if your only incentive is to win the eight-year-old championships, I think it's no surprise uh, how people behave. Yeah, it's interesting. When I finished the book, I was like, he probably doesn't know this, but he this is essentially a... An, a massive indictment or at least a cautionary tale against modern parenting. Um, because so many of the choices we make for our kids or the way we push our kids nowadays seem to be um, in the wrong direction. And I want to talk a little bit about one of those, which is this cult of the head start. So obviously the tiger model can work, but what, what do we know about why it's less effective? Or do we know that in the long run that kids that early specialize aren't as successful? 
Yeah, I think it's so. I think there's some domain dependent uh, issue here. So, and and that's sort of why early in the book I tried to set up this distinction of the kind versus wicked learning environment. And those those are terms coined, you know, not by me, by a psychologist named Robin Hogarth. And what he meant by kind learning environment was um, a domain where there are clearly delineated rules. Uh, maybe people even take turns. Next steps are clear. The goals are clear, and they don't change from one year to the next. So whatever you're doing will look next year like it did last year. Uh, and you can count on repetitive patterns. And so you, you oh, and importantly, you get feedback that is automatic, usually rapid, and 100% accurate. So, so golf is a great example of that. Uh, the kind learning environment. In those kinds of environments, people tend to get better just by effortful practice alone in in whatever the task is. So some of the people who study golf classify it almost as like an industrial task. You're trying to do certain known things over and over with as little deviation as possible, basically. And in those areas, I think specialization works um, quite well, where the goal is to be to be repetitive. In the wicked learning environment, the rules may or may not be clear. Uh, they may change. You can't count on repetitive patterns. The The task might look different next year than it did last year. You may or may not get feedback, and it could be delayed or it could be inaccurate. And in those areas, you you have to do what's called what psychologists call transfer, which is taking skills or knowledge and apply them to problems that you've never quite seen before. Maybe they're similar, um, or maybe they're totally different, which is called far transfer. So you have to be set up to do things that you haven't exactly done before. And in those cases, there's this classic research finding that, that psychologists summarize as breadth of training predicts breadth of transfer, meaning the more you need to be capable of, of facing new problems that you haven't quite seen before, what predicts your ability to do that is how broad your training was early on and how much you were forced to build these more general skills that you can then apply flexibly when you see something you haven't seen before. And my feeling was that is... That is most of the world that most of us work in to, to one degree or another. I mean, even most sports require sort of more dynamic challenges than something like golf, which is why I thought it was not good that so many books extrapolate from the Tiger Woods model. Like, it clearly worked for Tiger Woods. I think the problem is extrapolating it to everything else that, that people do, which is the case for you know a, a number of best-selling books. That's what they've done. Yeah, and, and as you point out um, over and over in the book, I mean— this idea that having um, this broader understanding, whether it's um, you know physical skills or or mental skills or breadth of knowledge, seems to apply to almost everything that we do these days, and yet there seems to be a real decline in the appreciation of the, the sort of classic liberal arts education, where you go to college and you study a bunch of things. So, do you see? This kind, these kinds of findings having an impact on that, where we're going to go back to saying, actually, we, we were right. Um, and this idea that we're not preparing our kids um, by not having them specialize and be ready for the, quote, real world is actually the opposite. They, they need to do as many things and study as many things in college as possible. That's a really interesting question. And in, in the chapter where I write about analogical thinking, so it's when you have to face problems that you haven't seen before using draw, how powerful it is to draw on analogies of structurally similar problems from other domains and how that makes people both generate more creative options and much more likely to solve the problem. Um, toward the end of that chapter, I talk about Deidre Gentner, the Northwestern professor who's probably the world's expert in analogical problem solving. And she created this test that essentially looks at how good someone is at 
at solving problems that aren't just directly in their own domain, you know, things that they, they really have to grapple with new knowledge. And what she found, she was testing Northwestern students because she's a professor there. And what she found was that the students who did the best were the ones who had no major but took a broad variety of classes. Some of them were in this thing called the Integrated Science Program where you don't have a major. You just minor in a bunch of different sciences. And the goal is to learn how each of those different disciplines approaches problem solving and what kind of frameworks they use. And those were the kids who did the best. And so that's an interesting thing to know. And then when I went around and talked to her colleagues, they were saying, uh, you know, we're not big fans of that program because those kids get behind. So here you have like the world's expert in this very important type of problem solving saying, here are the kids we're doing the best with. And her own colleagues saying, yeah, but those kids are behind, which just like splits my head in two, you know? So it's, and and so I, I do think that's a that's a real problem that there's an argument to be made that that kids should have a broader education. There's evidence behind it, and yet even other scientists who should who should be thinking about it scientifically seem to resist it. You know, so it's it's both from the problem solving perspective and and uh, you know there was I don't know if this this one sort of resonated with with what you're thinking about, but an economist who studied the advantages and disadvantages of specialization timing in higher ed. And found that the people who sample and then specialize later do indeed get out behind in terms of income right when they get out of college because the early specializers have more domain-specific knowledge. But by year six, they, they catch and surpass those early specializers while the early specializers end up leaving their career path entirely much more often because basically they were made to choose so early uh, that they made a poor choice. And the later specializers got a chance to sample just like athletes. And so they made a choice with better match quality, which is the the economist term for the degree of fit between one's abilities and interests and the work that they do. And so those people end up with higher growth rates, which in the long run turns out to be much more important than getting out to a head start. Yeah, there's a, a sentence that I had, had written out here because I was so fascinated by it that applies to this. You said, for a given amount of material, learning is most efficient in the long run when it is really inefficient in the short run. So what, what do you mean by that? And how do you apply that in, in the real world? Yeah, and it reminds me of the cognitive psychologist Nate Cornell, who featured in that chapter a lot. Where I remember he he told me, um, difficulty isn't a sign that you aren't learning, but ease is. So if if things are coming too easily, you're actually probably not learning uh, very well. And so what I meant by being inefficient in the short term is there are a few um, techniques for learning that. There are very actually small number of techniques for learning that are really well supported in cognitive psychology, even though there are a bajillion that have been tested and, and sort of learning hacks are you can find you know all over Facebook and LinkedIn and things like that. Um, but the number that are supported are things like uh, spacing and interleaving. And to give you an example, so spacing is, in one of the classic studies, a group of people who knew no Spanish were... Uh, one one group was given eight hours of Spanish vocabulary on study on one day. The other group was given four hours on one day, and then a month later they were given another four hours. So everyone had the same instructions, just one group got in a much more efficient way where they had to wait a month between the second study session. When they were brought back eight years later with no studying in the interim, the group that had the spaced practice remembered 250% more. And it, it turns out that the most efficient way to retain knowledge is basically to learn it and then wait until you've just forgotten it and then learn it again 
and that's how you basically transfer it to long-term memory. But that, that feels really inefficient, right? Why not do all your eight hours today? Yeah, that, of, that, that blew my mind. Yeah, wait. <laughs> I still don't even get that. And, and interleaving, the other one is, so there was just a study that just came out that I would have loved to include in the book about interleaving, which basically people often know as mixed practice. And this translates to physical skills, too. People might know variable practice where you're, instead of doing the same exact thing over and over, you're supposed to kind of mix it up. So Robert Bjork, one of the one of the eminent researchers in this field, uh, he, he has said that Shaquille O'Neal should have stopped trying to shoot from 15 feet free throws and should have been shooting from 14 and 16 and 17 and 13 because motor modulation was was the problem. Um, but But anyway, so this interleaving study that I wish would have been out that just came out randomized um, seventh grade math classrooms to different types of study. Some classrooms got what's called blocked practice where you get problem type A and then you do type A, 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 B, 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 C, 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 C. And the students make progress really rapidly because they're trying the same problems over and over. The other classrooms got interleaved practice where instead of doing those in a row, you mix them all together in all these different ways. And so the students have no idea what type of problem is coming after another. And so instead of learning how to execute procedures, they learn how to match a strategy to a type of problem. But it's more frustrating for them. They progress slower initially. They often rate their teachers worse. But when both these groups came along to test time, the group with the mixed practice or the interleaved practice destroyed the other group. It was one of the largest effect sizes, probably the largest effect size I've ever seen in a randomized learning trial. So... The effect size was on the order of taking a kid from the 50th percentile and moving them to the 80th percentile just by making their practice, by interleaving their practice, which frustrates them and slows down their progress initially. Um, so it's really some of these, these so-called desirable difficulties that make the learner feel like they're learning less slow down their initial progress. But when it comes to having to solve you know, new types of problems, uh, it, it, it works like rocket fuel. And does that apply to like learning a new sport as well? And and how how would you approach that? I, I think it absolutely does. In fact, their mixed practice is one area. So I mentioned, and I I mentioned in sort of sort of a footnote, there's some areas where learning physical skills and learning um, you know more strictly cognitive skills, even though sports skills have a lot of uh, obviously cognitive components, um, where they diverge. But mixed practice or interleaving or variable practice, like people use different names depending on what area they're studying it in, uh, is applies to both purely cognitive tasks and to, to sport learning. So I would say, you know, to put it in kind of a context that I think is important, when to, to go back to that, that U7 travel soccer team, right? When I saw these kids playing, they're playing on um, full-size adult field. They're learning to run plays and all these things. When you go to Brazil, what you see is the kids are playing futsal, Right? And small ball stays on the ground. One day they're playing on sand. The next day they're playing on cobblestones. The next day they're playing on a tennis court over the net. The, the shape of the playing field is different every day. Sometimes they have different numbers of people. Sometimes they're playing in really small areas, different surfaces. And so I think introducing as much variability as you possibly can um, is, a, is a really good thing to do. And I think to some degree people are familiar with that, like periodization, you know, over training, over the course of a training um, segment, you have to change the things you're doing if you want physiological adaptation. And I think that that absolutely holds true for 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 learning new sports skills. And w- one of the really interesting things, by the way, um, I, I was spent some time talking to the physiologist for Cirque du Soleil. And, you know, they have a bunch of Olympic athletes and their performers, too. And 
he was telling me that they had started a program where they started having performers learn the basics of, like, three other performers' disciplines, not because they were going to perform them, um, but wondering if it would make them better at what they do and, and you know, have other advantages. And that, that's a serious commitment, right? If you're going to take away from people who have to do all these performances, take away from the time they have to do deliberate practice in their main discipline, it must be pretty serious. And what they found was it, it lowered the injury rate. They track their injury rates compared to Canadian Gymnastics. It's a Canadian company. And it lowered their injury rates by like 30%. We can speculate as to why exactly that is. Like I have theories, but I don't know that anybody knows for sure. But but the empirical finding is that it makes them less fragile. And it isn't even about less time in training. It's just about diversity in training. Um, and I think there's similar findings for youth athletes like that where it's it's less total time necessarily that, that predisposes them to these like adult-style overuse injuries. And if you diversify, there's there's some kind of protective effect, even if it means you're spending just as much time in sports overall. So earlier we heard about millet and all the ways it can help your body and help the planet. Have you ever had millet before? I don't know that I have. But this is a grain that I had never actually tried before. So my wife Ellie and I found a recipe and made millet muffins. I've written an entire ad about millet. You tell me about millet. Well, it's over 10,000 years old. Mm-hmm. Mentioned in the Old Testament, the writings of Herodotus, and the journals of Marco Polo. What do they say about it? They mention it. They say, and then we had some millet. Lucky for us, millet is a better grain than I am a historian. It's not bad, actually. I might, I might just eat a spoonful of millet. It's kind of like graham crackers. Yeah. Find more millet recipes and other surprisingly delicious ideas at bobsredmill.com. And while you're there, go to bobsredmill.com slash outside and remember to enter to win a bunch of different prizes. That's bobsredmill.com slash outside. Well, you, you mentioned the word counterintuitive a lot, which in this entire book is is counterintuitive. Every chapter almost has a knocks down something that we all hold hold true. And one of the big ones these days is this idea of grit. And I know that there there was a principal at my kid's school who was you know passing along a, a book to all the parents about grit and how important it is. What is grit, and why is it actually not as good a predictor? Uh, as we thought it was uh, for for a kid's performance or in, in the future. Yeah, so grit, I mean, everyone probably knows the colloquial use of the word, but the psychological construct of grit is based on a 12-question survey. Um, half of the points are awarded for essentially resilience, and half of the points are awarded for, and I quote, consistency of interests. Um, and the most famous study... Uh, for example, was done at West Point on the U.S. Military Academy on incoming cadets. And grit turned out to be a better predictor of who would get through what they call beast barracks, which is the six-week orientation where you're basically taking high school kids and and turning them into officers in training. So it's physically and emotionally rigorous. And grit turned out to be a better predictor of who would get through that than the whole candidate score, which is like standardized test scores and athleticism and all this other stuff. And most people do get through beast barracks. Not, Not many people leave, but that's good to know. Um, that it's a good predictor of that. But there are a couple of issues with that. First of all, the study starts, like all the studies 
of grit pretty much. So some of the others start with people who are already in the finals of the National Spelling Bee. So the studies start by pre-selecting someone for a very short-term goal already. And of course, life is not a six-week orientation or the finals of the National Spelling Bee. And so this measurement that penalizes people for changing their interests starts by choosing people at the beginning of a very short-term goal. And so it sort of bakes that into the results, the fact that they will do better by not changing their interests in the next six weeks while they have this task to accomplish. And so that's a problem statisticians call restriction of range when you select people in that way. And I should say, the researchers themselves point this out in their papers. They just, that this is a limitation of their research. They just didn't, didn't really survive the translation to the public, I wouldn't say. The other issue is, in the longer term, um, grit ceases to be predictive in that way. So if you look at these cadets at West Point, if you zoom out, you know, they have a five-year commitment after they graduate, those gritty cadets, since the early 1990s, about half of them have been quitting the Army on the day that they are allowed. And the Army initially thought that this was a millennial issue, you know, that like the millennials had a grit problem and West Point had developed a grit problem overnight, so much so that a high-ranking Army officer suggested defunding the U.S. Military Academy because he said it was, quote, an institution that taught its cadets to get out of the army, um, which is doubtful, right? And it turns out a a group of officers and scientists decided to study this problem for the Army Strategic Studies Institute. And what they found was that West Point didn't develop a grit problem overnight. It developed a match quality problem. So the strict upper-out structure of career progression in the Army had worked fine when we were in an industrial economy where firms were very specialized. People could expect work next year to look like last year. And that also meant that there were huge barriers to lateral mobility because experience in a particular task was so important. But then you, we switch to the knowledge economy right around when this trend takes hold, and suddenly there's a premium on workers who can engage in knowledge creation and problem-solving and skill transfer, you know, the ability to to deal with problems they haven't seen before. And so suddenly these highest potential officers are seeing that they have those skills. They're not giving they're not given any agency over mat- career matching in the army, but now they there's tons of lateral mobility in our economy, so they start leaving to find better matches. And in fact, it played out such that the the more likely an army the army was to give to identify someone as high potential and give them a scholarship, the more likely they were to quit as soon as they could. And it's not because they weren't gritty. It's because they weren't allowed to search for good match quality. And so at first, the Army tried to throw money at these officers. And the ones who were going to stay took it, and the ones who were going to leave left anyway. And that was a half billion dollars of taxpayer money down the drain. Didn't change retention at all. And then they started programs like one called talent-based branching, where instead of saying, okay, here's your career path, go up or out, they said, here, we're going to pair you with a coach, try this one career path, Reflect on how it fits you with your coach, your interests and abilities. Then try this other one, this other one, these other two. And we'll triangulate better match quality for you. And they've had much better luck with retention doing that than they did throwing money at people. And so I think it really resonated when one of the researchers told me this phrase I love, when you find fit, it looks like grit. Meaning when you get people in a spot that has high match quality for their interests and abilities, they display the characteristics of grit anyway even if they didn't before, and they persist longer, and they work harder, and their performance is better. And so I think the idea that that some people have taken from the GRIT survey, that changing interests signals um, that you're destined for low performance, is basically the opposite of a huge body of research that shows you should change interests in an effort to maximize your match quality, because you will take on the characteristics of GRIT 
once you get a good good fit. So how does one how does one with a a solid career, um, pretty happy in what they're doing, but you know, if you anticipate the fact that your personality and desires are going to change over time, how do you within the structure of a career, you know, do that sampling and 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 um, get that wider range of opportunities to see what's possible? Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you what I what I do, and I was heavily influenced by the work of Herminia Ibarra, um, you know, who who talks about how people. I, I mentioned her research in the book about how people make successful career transitions, and she studies people who make unsuccessful career transitions also. Um, but it it really resonated with me as someone you know who was living in a tent in the Arctic as an ecology researcher when I decided to try to become a writer. Um, what I have done is I uh, so when, when I, I was a college runner, and when I got out of college, I, I transitioned my sort of training journal, my goal book, to the rest of life and actually found out it didn't work as well for me because track and field goals are a lot cleaner than, than goals in the real world. And I've switched over now to what something Herminia kind of encourages, uh, conceptually what I call my book of small experiments where at least every other month I have to have a hypothesis where something I want to learn, something I want to explore, something, some skill I want to develop and have to find a way to go about testing it and come back and then reflect on how well that worked. And am I more interested in this than I thought? Am I less interested in this than I thought? Did it teach me something I didn't expect? Did it teach me nothing at all? And and keeping this book, I forced myself to do that every other month. And, and so, give me an example of one of those things that you've tried. So one of one that was really fruitful for me during the writing of this book, I kind of got stuck in the writing at a certain point. And in the years leading up to this book, I had been working at ProPublica doing investigative stuff and. Um, well, here, I'll tell you what the experiment was. The experiment was I decided to take an online fiction writing course. And what I wanted to do was try a different form of writing than what I was used to. And one of the first things that popped up, I was just, you know, I saw an ad was an online fiction writing course. So I take this beginner's online fiction writing course. You know, nothing I've done matters. Nobody cares. And one of the exercises we had to do was writing a story with no dialogue whatsoever. And I found that pretty difficult. And I sort of for whatever reason, it kind of knocked me out of my, you know, my my normal mode. Where doing investigative work at ProPublica, I'd been leaning on quotes a lot because you you know you want people you want people to explain things in their words a lot in investigative work if you can. And I realized that in the manuscript of range, I had been leaning on other people doing explanation that I should be doing, and in many cases, I was leaning on that because I didn't understand what I was writing well enough to feel confident that I could write it instead of just allowing it to be in their words. And, it, and it, it sort of made me cognizant of that. And I went back through the whole manuscript, re, you know, dove deeper on some of the things that, that I sort of was finessing that I didn't quite understand as well, um, took out a huge number of quotes. And, you know, I, I guess I don't know the counterfactual because, you know, the readers don't get to see the other version, but I think it made it a much better book. And it also attuned me to the fact that I was, without thinking sort of leaning on a certain kind of writing and that was that had just become automatic and very comfortable for me. Um, so I, I found that to be a very fruitful experience. Not all of the experiments I enter are that fruitful, but that one uh, really, you know, caused me to then take another one and I think has really improved my improved my writing. And so I'm going to keep doing, looking for form, to engage in forms of writing that aren't the kind that I just come into direct contact with from my work. I, I really was fascinated by the idea of this... Um experience does not lead to expert judgment. And what do we know about that? And and why why is that not the case? And this gets to someone who I think is maybe the most underappreciated 
scientist of the 20th century, a guy named Paul Meal, who first did this in 1954, wrote this book where he just looked at all of the research he could find um, about expert judgment. Essentially, you know, it could be um, psychologists predicting how patients would respond to treatment. It could be college admissions officers predicting how people will do in school. Um, you know, social workers predicting recidivism, whatever. People predicting, HR people predicting how well someone would do in job training, all these things. And and what he found basically was that with experience, these these experts became more confident but no more accurate. Uh, and even when, you know, even when shown how inaccurate they were. And I think that launched a whole field of study about cognitive bias. So without Paul Meal, there's no Daniel Kahneman, you know, who, who won the Nobel Prize for illuminating cognitive bias. He was sort of inspired by, by Meal's findings. Um, and I think when we're not in those kind learning environments, basically, we, we seem to intuitively treat the whole world as if it's a kind learning environment like golf, where you do something and because you experienced it and, you know, you perceive some result uh, you think you're getting better. But in fact, most domains, that, that's not the case. We're not that good at intuiting cause and effect. The feedback is usually delayed. So we have to find ways of learning other than, other than direct experience. And if we're unwilling to do that, it, it leads to some pretty bad results. So that's like chapter 10 is focused on expert predictions of trends in the world. And we're, we're all constantly making predictions in our lives, whether it's about what we should be doing for work or who we're going to marry. You know, we're constantly making usually implicit predictions. And what that work found was that the more narrow experts were, so the more, if they had spent, say, their entire career on one or two problems, typically the worse they were at making predictions about the world. They knew so much about a very narrow area that they would they would fit any situation to their sort of narrow lens, and they, they could do that because they had so much information in one narrow area that they could always find something to cherry pick. And in fact, those people got worse as they accumulated experience and credentials. So they were so narrow, they get worse because they just, as they get more and more lauded in one particular very narrow area, they increasingly see the entire world through that mental model. Whereas the people who did really well in forecasting, often members of the general public, who in forecasting tournaments outperformed CIA analysts with classified with access to classified data those people were very were very broad and they didn't stick to a particular mental model they went around and gathered up um, different perspectives on on all these sort of whatever issue they were trying to predict as uh, Philip Tetlock who did this work said they have dragonfly eyes dragonfly eyes composed of thousands of lenses each one takes a takes a distinct picture, and they're integrated in the dragonfly's brain. And so they weren't sort of anchored in any one area of experience, and that allowed them to be a lot more flexible with whatever problems they approached in the world, and they ended up having really, really good judgment. The problem is there was an inverse correlation between how good people were at making forecasts and, and how uh, prominent they are. So like the people who are on the news making predictions were the worst, least accurate, but they are the most prominent. Um, and their narrow view of the world allows them to speak really authoritatively, which is why they make for good television, but they don't actually make good predictions. So, so we really kind of have this backward. Yeah. So this, that was the part that really resonated for me in a bad way. Cause I just, it, it made me reconsider my whole belief in, um, whether I know what a good story is or not. Cause I, you know, I go, we, we have these story idea meetings, you know, once a month and my, my sense is that, okay, well, I've been the editor here for 12 years I have a pretty good radar and, and, and can see a story and say, yeah, that, that's going to work. But now maybe I should just 
get a, a group off the street to come to those meetings and tell, tell us if this story is going to be a success or not. Well, those those volunteers, they were they were people who were proactively, they had a lot of what's called active open-mindedness. So they weren't just random volunteers. They were they were people who really had these wide-ranging reading interests. And my guess is you have you read a lot. <laughs> um, and so re- reading yeah. a lot and reading widely was like one of the main attributes of those people. Uh, and that that's probably something that you do. <laughs> so you, so you, you probably, you know, have a lot of cause for having good judgment in, in that area. But one of the most, and, and people can get better at this, and one of the most, uh, so th- there were some, Tetlock implemented, tested some training regimen to see if people could get better at, at making these kinds of predictions, and he found they could. And probably the two most important parts of the training in terms of the effect they had on people were, one, just keeping track of your own judgments and which ones went well and which ones didn't. Apparently, just keeping track makes us a lot more cognizant of when we go wrong. And otherwise, we kind of only remember when we went right, mostly, and like a few instances of when we went wrong. So keeping track had a huge effect. And so did what was called reference class forecasting, which basically means instead of thinking about all the internal details of this story or this project or this investment, our natural inclination is to focus in on all the the internal details, um, you know, every detail we can get about the case at hand. That's called the inside view. But the best thing to do is actually to start by saying, what other cases that have structural similarities to this can I think of? And I'll, I'll gather as many of those as I can and think about how those went before I move to the internal details. So switching the order, basically, of how you how you do that. So when people start with the internal details, they, they just stick with them. But if they start with that outside view of looking for other structurally similar, say, stories uh, in this case, that's the place to start before you move to the internal details. And it'll give you a um, – it, it had a big effect on how – how good people's predictions were when they started with that outside view of looking for structural similarities as opposed to focused on the internal details. I want to end where, where you end uh, at the end of the book, which kind of made me chuckle because every time somebody does write a book like such as this, um, the immediate thing that people want to know, including myself, is like, okay, David, so you found all this out. Like, Give me a sentence about <laughs> how to apply this to my life. And so you went about trying to figure out that sentence and um, – and it, it was actually one of the big takeaways that I found so encouraging about this book that, that's kind of buried in here, which is this idea of like, don't don't feel like you're behind, uh, which is what we're kind of made to feel all through our life. And even, you know, if you're in your, say, mid 40s and looking to do a career change, what might stop you from doing that is like, well, I got to start at the beginning and I'm way behind all these other people who have started a career in this. But why was that your main takeaway from all of this? I think on the one hand, it was... Again, getting to that theme of, in many cases, if you're willing to adopt the principles of optimal development, you're going to be behind because, they, you know, they, they aren't always what causes the best short-term progress. Also, the fact that interaction, you know, I explained this in the introduction, some of my interaction with uh, military veterans who were given scholarships by the Pat Tillman Foundation to aid career changes. When I first interacted with them, you know, these are former Navy SEALs and Delta Force and all this stuff how behind they felt struck me because to me i'm i'm like these people just exude excellence you know coming out of their ears everywhere they go and they were so they felt so behind and i had felt that too when i got to when i left training to be a scientist and i arrived at sports illustrated you know there were a couple odd jobs between there but as a temp fact checker 6 years older than the people i was doing the temp fact checking for and so I really felt profoundly behind. But then it turned out that taking my very ordinary science skills and, and 
you know, bringing them over to a sports magazine, they were suddenly seen as extraordinary. Um, so, so I shot from temp fact checker to the youngest senior writer like very quickly. Um, but I remember that feeling behind, and, and and I've been that way when I then transitioned to ProPublica. But those transitions have been great, and you know, I realized that it's much more productive to compare yourself to yourself yesterday than to look around and see people who are younger than you and have more than you because we aren't on, I think we perceive people as being on linear trajectories, but we most certainly are not. And so I think considering ourselves behind, we don't really, our assessments aren't really accurate and it doesn't do anything productive for us. Uh, So I think the start of being willing to adopt any of the, any of the findings of any of the science in the entire book almost the prerequisite is not feeling so far behind that you're unwilling to, to try those things. Yeah. Well, David, thank you so much for talking with us. Yeah, I appreciate it. I'm a fan and longtime reader, so it's, you know, it's cool for me to be able to, to do this. I appreciate your interest. It's Chris Kyes talking with author David Epstein. His book is Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. This episode was produced by Robbie Carver and Mike Roberts. It was brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, making the ingredients for proper nutrition for athletes. More at bobsredmill.com. The Outside Podcast is a production of Outside Magazine and PRX. We'll be back next week.